Book One, Chapter Four of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book One Mrs. Baines. Chapter Four Elephant. One. Sophia, will you come and see the elephant? Do come. Constance entered the drawing-room with this request on her eager lips. No, said Sophia, with a touch of condescension, I'm far too busy for elephants. Only two years had passed, but both girls were grown up now, long sleeves, long skirts, hair that had settled down in life, and a demeanour immensely serious, as though existence were terrific in its responsibilities. Yet sometimes childhood surprisingly broke through the crust of gravity, as now in Constance, aroused by such things as elephants, and, and proclaimed with vivacious gestures that it was not dead after all. The sisters were sharply differentiated. Constance wore the black alpaca apron and the scissors at the end of a long black elastic, which indicated her vocation in the shop. She was proving a considerable success in the millinery department. She had learned how to talk to people, and was, in her modest way, very self-possessed. She was getting a little stouter. Everybody liked her. Sophia had developed into the student. Time had accentuated her reserve. Her sole friend was Miss Chetwind, with whom she was, having regard to the disparity of their ages, very intimate. At home she spoke little. She lacked amiability, as her mother said. She was touchy. She required diplomacy from others, but did not render it again. Her attitude, indeed, was one of half-hidden disdain, now gentle, now coldly bitter. She would not wear an apron, in an age when aprons were almost essential to decency. No, she would not wear an apron, and there was an end of it. She was not so tidy as Constance. And if Constance's hands had taken on the coarse texture which comes from commerce with needles, pins, artificial flowers, and stuffs, Sophia's fine hands were seldom innocent of ink. But Sophia was splendidly beautiful, and even her mother and Constance had an instinctive idea that that face was, at any rate, a partial excuse for her asperity. "'Well,' said Constance, "'if you won't, I do believe I shall ask mother if she will.' Sophia, bending over her books, made no answer, but the top of her head said, "'This has no interest to me whatever.' Constance left the room, and in a moment returned with her mother. "'Sophia,' said her mother, with gay excitement, "'you might go up and sit with your father for a bit, while Constance and I just run up to the playground to see the elephant. You can work just as well in there as here. Your father's asleep.' "'Oh, very well.' Sophia agreed haughtily. "'Whatever is all this fuss about an elephant? Anyhow, it'll be quieter in your room. The noise here is splitting.' She gave a supercilious glance into the square as she languidly rose. It was the morning of the third day of Bursley Wakes, not the modern, finicking and respectable, but an orgiastic carnival, gross in all its manifestations of joy. The whole centre of the town was given over to the furious pleasures of the people— most of the square was occupied by Woomwell's menagerie, in a vast oblong tent, whose raging beasts roared and growled day and night. 
and spreading away from this supreme attraction, right up through the market-place, past the town hall, to Duck Bank, Duck Square, and the wasteland called the playground, were hundreds of booths, with banners displaying all the delights of the horrible. You could see the atrocities of the French Revolution, and of the Fiji Islands, and the ravages of unspeakable diseases, and the living flesh of a nearly nude human female, guaranteed to turn the scale at twenty-two stone, and the skeletons of the mysterious phantoscope, and the bloody contests of champions naked to the waist, with the chance of picking up a red tooth as a relic. You could try your strength by hitting an image of a fellow-creature in the stomach, and test your aim by knocking off the heads of other images with a wooden ball. You could also shoot with rifles at various targets. All the streets were lined with stalls loaded with food in heaps, chiefly dried fish, the entrails of animals, and gingerbread. All the public houses were crammed, and frenzied, jolly drunkards, men and women, lunged along the pavements everywhere their shouts vying with the trumpets, horns, and drums of the booths, and the shrieking, rattling toys that the children carried. It was a glorious spectacle, but not a spectacle for the leading families. Miss Jetwin's school was closed, so that the daughters of leading families might remain in seclusion till the worst was over. The Baineses ignored the wakes in every possible way, choosing that week to have a show of morning goods in the left-hand window, and refusing to let Maggie outside on any pretext. Therefore, the dazzling social success of the elephant, which was quite easily drawing Mrs. Baines into the vortex, cannot imaginably be overestimated. On the previous night, one of the three Woomwell elephants had suddenly knelt on a man in the tent. He had then walked out of the tent, and picked up another man at haphazard from the crowd which was staring at the great pictures in front, and tried to put this second man into his mouth. Being stopped by his Indian attendant with a pitchfork, he placed the man on the ground, and stuck his tusk through an artery of the victim's arm. He then, amid unexampled excitement, suffered himself to be led away. He was conducted to the rear of the tent, just in front of Baines's shuttered windows, and by means of stakes, pulleys, and ropes, forced to his knees. His head was whitewashed, and six men of the rifle corps were engaged to shoot at him, at a distance of five yards while constables kept the crowd off with truncheons. He died instantly, rolling over with a soft thud. The crowd cheered, and, intoxicated by their importance, the volunteers fired three more volleys into his carcass, and were then borne off as heroes to different inns. The elephant, by the help of his two companions, was got onto a railway lorry, and disappeared into the night. Such was the greatest sensation that has ever occurred— or perhaps will ever occur in Bursley. The excitement about the repeal of the Corn Laws, or about Inkerman, was feeble compared to that excitement. Mr. Critchlow, who had been called on to put a hasty tourniquet round the arm of the second victim, had popped in afterwards to tell John Baines all about it. Mr. Baines's interest, however, had been slight. Mr. Critchlow succeeded better with the ladies, who, though they had witnessed the shooting from the drawing-room, were thirsty for the most trifling details. The next day it was known that the elephant lay near the playground, pending the decision of the chief bailiff and the medical officer as to his burial, and everybody had to visit the corpse. No social exclusiveness could withstand the seduction of that dead elephant. Pilgrims travelled from all the five towns to see him. "'We're going now,' said Mrs. Baines, after she had assumed her bonnet and shawl. "'All right,' 
said Sophia, pretending to be absorbed in study, as she sat on the sofa at the foot of her father's bed. And Constance, having put her head in at the door, drew her mother after her like a magnet. Then Sophia heard a remarkable conversation in the passage. "'Are you going up to see the elephant, Mrs. Baines?' asked the voice of Mr. Povey. "'Yes. Why? I think I had better come with you. The crowd is sure to be very rough.' Mr. Povey's tone was firm. He had a position. "'But the shop? We shall not be long,' said Mr. Povey. "'Oh, yes, mother,' Constance added appealingly. Sophia felt the house thrill as the side-door banged. She sprang up and watched the three cross King Street diagonally, and so plunge into the wakes. This triple departure was surely the crowning tribute to the dead elephant. It was simply astonishing. It caused Sophia to perceive that she had miscalculated the importance of the elephant. It made her regret her scorn of the elephant as an attraction. She was left behind, and the joy of life was calling her. She could see down into the vaults on the opposite side of the street, where working-men, potters and colliers, in their best clothes, some with high hats, were drinking, gesticulating, and laughing in a row at a long counter. She noticed, while she was thus at the bedroom window, a young man ascending King Street, followed by a porter trundling a flat barrow of luggage. He passed slowly under the very window. She flushed. She had evidently been startled by the sight of this young man into no ordinary state of commotion. She glanced at the books on the sofa, and then at her father. Mr. Baines, thin and gaunt and acutely pitiable, still slept. His brain had almost ceased to be active now. He had to be fed and tended like a bearded baby, and he would sleep for hours at a stretch, even in the daytime. Sophia left the room. A moment later she ran into the shop— an apparition that amazed the three young lady assistants. At the corner near the window, on the fancy side, a little nook had been formed, by screening off a portion of the counter with large flower-boxes, placed end up. This corner had come to be known as Miss Baines's corner. Sophia hastened to it, squeezing past a young lady assistant, in the narrow space between the back of the counter and the shelf-lined wall. She sat down in Constance's chair, and pretended to look for something. She had examined herself in the cheval-glass in the showroom, on her way from the sick-chamber. When she heard a voice near the door of the shop asking first for Mr. Povey, and then for Mrs. Baines, she rose, and seizing the object nearest to her, which happened to be a pair of scissors, she hurried towards the showroom stairs, as though the scissors had been a grail, passionately sought and to be jealously hidden away. She wanted to stop and turn round, but something prevented her. She was at the end of the counter, under the curving stairs, when one of the assistants said, I, "'I suppose you don't know when Mr. Povey or your mother are likely to be back, Miss Sophia? Here's—' It was a divine release for Sophia. "'There I—' she stammered, turning round abruptly. Luckily she was still sheltered behind the counter. The young man, whom she had seen in the street, came boldly forward. "'Good morning, Miss Sophia.' said he, hat in hand, it's a long time since I had the pleasure of seeing you. Never had she blushed as she blushed then. She scarcely knew what she was doing as she moved slowly towards her sister's corner again, the young man following her on the customer's side of the counter. 2. She knew that he was a traveller for the most renowned and gigantic of all Manchester wholesale firms, Birkinshaws, but she did not know his name, which was Gerald Scales. 
He was a rather short but extremely well-proportioned man of thirty, with fair hair and a distinguished appearance, as became a representative of Birkinshaw's. His broad, tight necktie, with an edge of white collar showing above it, was particularly elegant. He had been on the road for Birkinshaw's for several years, but Sophia had only seen him once before in her life, when she was a little girl three years ago. The relations between the travellers of the great firms and their solid, sure clients in small towns were in those days often cordially intimate. The traveller came with the lustre of a historic reputation around him. There was no need to fawn for orders, and the client's immense and immaculate respectability made him the equal of no matter what ambassador. It was a case of mutual esteem, and of that confidence-generating phenomenon, an old account. The tone in which a commercial traveller of middle age would utter the phrase, an old account, revealed in a flash all that was romantic, prim, and stately in mid-Victorian commerce. In the days of Baines, after one of the elaborately engraved advice circulars had arrived, our Mr. So-and-so will have the pleasure of waiting upon you on, whatever it is, day next, the something or other inst. John might in certain cases be expected to say, on the morning of whatever day, "'Mrs., what have you gotten for supper to-night?' Mr. Gerald Scales had never been asked to supper. He had never even seen John Baines. But as the youthful successor of an aged traveller who had had the pleasure of St. Luke's Square on behalf of Birkinshaw since before railways, Mrs. Baines had treated him with a faint agreeable touch of maternal familiarity— and both her daughters, being once in the shop during his visit, she had on that occasion commanded the gawky girls to shake hands with him. Sophia had never forgotten that glimpse. The young man without a name had lived in her mind, brightly glowing, as the very symbol and incarnation of the masculine and the elegant. The renewed sight of him seemed to have wakened her out of a sleep. Assuredly she was not the same Sophia— as she sat in her sister's chair in the corner, entrenched behind the perpendicular boxes, playing nervously with the scissors, her beautiful face was transfigured into the ravishingly angelic. It would have been impossible for Mr. Gerald Scales or anybody else to credit, as he gazed at those lovely, sensitive, vivacious, responsive features, that Sophia was not a character of heavenly sweetness and perfection. She did not know what she was doing— she was nothing but the exquisite expression of a deep instinct to attract and charm. Her soul itself emanated from her in an atmosphere of allurement and acquiescence. Could those laughing lips hang in a heavy pout? Could that delicate and mild voice be harsh? Could those burning eyes be coldly inimical? Never. The idea was inconceivable. And Mr. Gerald Scales, with his head over the top of the boxes, yielded to the spell— Remarkable that Mr. Gerald Scales, with all his experience, should have had to come to Bursley to find the pearl, the paragon, the ideal. But so it was. They met in an equal abandonment. The only difference between them was that Mr. Scales, by force of habit, kept his head. "'I see it is your wakes here,' said he. He was polite to the wakes, but now, with the least inflection in the world, he put the wakes at its proper level in the scheme of things— as a local unimportance. She adored him for this. She was athirst for sympathy in the task of scorning everything local. "'I expect you didn't know,' she said, implying that there was every reason why a man of his mundane interests should not know. 
"'I should have remembered if I had thought,' said he, "'but I didn't think. What's this about an elephant?' "'Oh!' she exclaimed. "'Have you heard of that?' "'My porter was full of it. "'Well,' she said, "'of course it's a very big thing in Bursley.' As she smiled in gentle pity of poor Bursley, he naturally did the same, and he thought how much more advanced and broad the younger generation was than the old. He would never have dared to express his real feelings about Bursley to Mrs. Baines, or even to Mr. Povey, who was, however, of no generation. Yet here was a young woman actually sharing them. She told him all the history of the elephant. "'Must have been very exciting,' he commented, despite himself. "'Do you know,' she replied, "'it was.' After all, Bursley was climbing in their opinion. And my mother and my sister and Mr. Povey have all gone to see it, and that's why they're not here. That the elephant should have caused both Mr. Povey and Mrs. Baines to forget that the representative of Birkinshaws was due to call was indeed a final victory for the elephant. But not you, he exclaimed. No, she said, not me. Why didn't you go? He continued his flattering investigations with a generous smile. "'I simply didn't care to,' said she, proudly nonchalant. "'And I suppose you're in charge here?' "'No,' she answered. "'I just happened to have run down here for these scissors. Uh, that's all.' "'I often see your sister,' said he. "'Often do I say that is generally when I come, but never you. "'I'm never in the shop,' she said. "'It's just an accident to-day.' "'Oh, so you leave the shop to your sister?' "'Yes.' She said nothing of her teaching. Then there was a silence. Sophia was very thankful to be hidden from the curiosity of the shop. The shop could see nothing of her, and only the back of the young man, and the conversation had been conducted in low voices. She tapped her foot, stared at the worn, polished surface of the counter with the brass yard-measure nailed along its edge, and then she uneasily turned her gaze to the left and seemed to be examining the backs of the black bonnets which were perched on high stands in the great window. Then her eyes caught his for an important moment. "'Yes,' she breathed. Somebody had to say something. If the shop missed the murmur of their voices, the shop would wonder what had happened to them. Mr. Scales looked at his watch. "'I dare say if I come in again about two, he began— "'Oh, yes, they're sure to be in then,' she burst out, before he could finish his sentence. He left abruptly, queerly, without shaking hands. But then it would have been difficult, she argued, for him to have put his arm over the boxes, and without expressing the hope of seeing her again. She peeped through the black bonnets, and saw the porter put the leather strap over his shoulders, raise the rear of the barrow, and trundle off. But she did not see Mr. Scales. She was drunk. Thoughts were tumbling about in her brain, like cargo loose in a rolling ship. Her entire conception of herself was being altered. Her attitude towards life was being altered. The thought which knocked hardest against its fellows was, "'Only in these moments have I begun to live.' And as she flitted upstairs to resume watch over her father, she sought to devise an innocent-looking method by which she might see Mr. Scales when he next called and she speculated as to what his name was. 3. When Sophia arrived in the bedroom, she was startled, because her father's head and beard were not in their accustomed place on the pillow. She could only make out something vaguely unusual sloping off the side of the bed. 
A few seconds passed, not to be measured in time, and she saw that the upper part of his body had slipped down, and his head was hanging, inverted, near the floor between the bed and the ottoman. His face, neck, and hands were dark and congested. His mouth was open, and the tongue protruded through the black, swollen, mucous lips. His eyes were prominent and coldly staring. The fact was that Mr. Baines had wakened up, and, being restless, had slid out partially from his bed, and died of asphyxia. After having been unceasingly watched for fourteen years, he had, with an invalid's natural perverseness, taken advantage of Sophia's brief dereliction to expire. Say what you will, amid Sophia's horror and her terrible grief and shame, she had visitings of the idea that he did it on purpose. She ran out from the room, knowing by intuition that he was dead, and shrieked out, "'Maggie!' at the top of her voice. The house echoed. "'Yes, miss,' said Maggie, quite close, coming out of Mr. Povey's chamber with a slop-pail. "'Fetch Mr. Critchlow at once. Be quick, just as you are. It's father.' Maggie, perceiving darkly that disaster was in the air, and instantly filled with importance and a sort of black joy, dropped her pail in the exact middle of the passage, and almost fell down the crooked stairs. One of Maggie's deepest instincts— always held in check by the stern dominance of Mrs. Baines, was to leave pails prominent on the main roots of the house, and now, divining what was at hand, it flamed into insurrection. No sleepless night had ever been so long to Sophia as the three minutes which elapsed before Mr. Critchlow came. As she stood on the mat outside the bedroom door, she tried to draw her mother and Constance and Mr. Povey by magnetic force out of the wakes into the house— and her muscles were contracted in this strange effort. She felt that it was impossible to continue living if the secret of the bedroom remained unknown one instant longer, so intense was her torture, and yet that the torture which could not be borne must be borne. Not a sound in the house, not a sound from the shop, only the distant murmur of the wakes. "'Why did I forget father?' she asked herself with awe. "'I only meant to tell him that they were all out and run back.' Why did I forget father? She would never be able to persuade anybody that she had literally forgotten her father's existence for quite ten minutes, but it was true, though shocking. Then there were noises downstairs. "'Bless us! Bless us!' came the unpleasant voice of Mr. Critchlow, as he bounded up the stairs on his long legs. He strode over the pail. "'What's amiss?' He was wearing his white apron, and he carried his spectacles in his bony hand— "'It's father. He's—' Sophia faltered. She stood away so that he should enter the room first. He glanced at her keenly, and, as it were, resentfully, and went in. She followed, timidly, remaining near the door while Mr. Critchlow inspected her handiwork. He put on his spectacles with strange deliberation, and then, bending his knees outwards, thus lowered his body so that he could examine John Baines point-blank. He remained, staring like this, his hands on his sharp, apron-covered knees, for a little space, and then he seized the inert mass and restored it to the bed, and wiped those clotted lips with his apron. Sophia heard loud breathing behind her. It was Maggie. She heard a huge, snorting sob. Maggie was showing her emotion. "'Go fetch doctor!' Mr. Critchlow rasped. "'And don't stand gaping there!' "'Run for the doctor, Maggie!' said Sophia. "'I'll come you to let him fall,' Mr. Critchlow demanded. "'I was out of the room. I just ran down into the shop.' 
"'Gallivanting with that young Scales,' said Mr. Critchlow, with devilish ferocity. "'Well, you've killed your father, that's all.' He must have been at his shop-door and seen the entry of the traveller, and it was precisely characteristic of Mr. Critchlow to jump in the dark at a horrible conclusion, and to be right after all. For Sophia, Mr. Critchlow had always been the personification of malignity and malevolence, and now these qualities in him made him, to her, almost obscene. Her pride brought up tremendous reinforcements, and she approached the bed. "'Is he dead?' she asked, in a quiet tone. Somewhere within, a voice was whispering, "'So his name is Scales.' "'Don't I tell you he's dead?' "'Pale on the stairs!' This mild exclamation came from the passage. Mrs. Baines, misliking the crowds abroad, had returned alone. She had left Constance in charge of Mr. Povey. Coming into her house by the shop and showroom, she had first noted the phenomenon of the pale, proof of her theory of Maggie's incurable untidiness. "'Been to see the elephant, I reckon?' said Mr. Critchlow, in fierce sarcasm, as he recognised Mrs. Baines's voice. Sophia leapt towards the door, as though to bar her mother's entrance. But Mrs. Baines was already opening the door. "'Well, my pet,' she was beginning cheerfully. Mr. Critchlow confronted her, and he had no more pity for the wife than for the daughter. He was furiously angry because his precious property had been irretrievably damaged by the momentary carelessness of a silly girl. Yes, John Baines was his property, his dearest toy— he was convinced that he alone had kept John Baines alive for fourteen years, that he alone had fully understood the case and sympathised with the sufferer, that none but he had been capable of displaying ordinary common sense in the sick-room. He had learned to regard John Baines as, in some sort, his creation, and now, with their stupidity, their neglect, their elephants, between them, they had done for John Baines. He had always known that it would come to that— and it had come to that. "'She let him fall out of bed, and you're a widow now, missus,' he announced, with a virulence hardly conceivable. His angular features and dark eyes expressed a murderous hate for every woman named Baines. "'Mother!' cried Sophia. "'I only ran down into the shop to—to—' She seized her mother's arm in frenzied agony. "'My child!' cried Mrs. Baines rising miraculously to the situation, with a calm benevolence of tone and gesture that remained for ever sublime in the stormy heart of Sophia. Do not hold me. With infinite gentleness she loosed herself from those clasping hands. "'Have you sent for the doctor?' she questioned Mr. Critchlow. The fate of her husband presented no mysteries to Mrs. Baines. Everybody had been warned a thousand times of the danger of leaving the paralytic, whose life depended on his position, and whose fidgetiness was therefore a constant menace of death to him. For five thousand nights she had wakened infallibly every time he stirred, and rearranged him by the flicker of a little oil-lamp. But Sophia, unhappy creature, had merely left him. That was all. Mr. Critchlow and the widow gazed, helplessly waiting, at the pitiable corpse, of which the salient part was the white beard. They knew not that they were gazing at a vanished era. John Baines had belonged to the past, to the age when men really did think of their souls, when orators by phrases could move crowds to fury or to pity, when no one had learnt to hurry, when Demos was only turning in his sleep, 
when the sole beauty of life resided in its inflexible and slow dignity, when hell really had no bottom, and a gilt-clasped Bible really was the secret of England's greatness. Mid-Victorian England lay on that mahogany bed. Ideals had passed away with John Baines. It is thus that ideals die, not in the conventional pageantry of honoured death, but sorrily, ignobly, while one's head is turned. And Mr. Povey and Constance, very self-conscious, went and saw the dead elephant, and came back. And at the corner of King Street, Constance exclaimed brightly, "'Why, who's gone out and left the side door open?' For the doctor had at length arrived, and Maggie, in showing him upstairs with pious haste, had forgotten to shut the door." and they took advantage of the side-door, rather guiltily, to avoid the eyes of the shop. They feared that in the parlour they would be the centre of a curiosity half ironical and half reproving. For had they not accomplished an escapade? So they walked slowly. The real murderer was having his dinner in the commercial room up at the Tiger, opposite the town hall. 4. Several shutters were put up in the windows of the shop to indicate a death, and the news instantly became known in trading circles throughout the town. Many people simultaneously remarked on the coincidence that Mr. Baines should have died while there was a show of mourning goods in his establishment. This coincidence was regarded as extremely sinister, and it was apparently felt that, for the sake of the mind's peace, one ought not to inquire into such things too closely. From the moment of putting up the prescribed shutters, John Baines and his funeral began to acquire importance in Bursley, and their importance grew rapidly, almost from hour to hour. The wakes continued as usual, except that the chief constable, upon representations being made to him by Mr. Critchlow and other citizens, descended upon St. Luke's Square, and forbade the activities of Woomwell's orchestra, Wombwell and the chief constable differed as to the justice of the decree, but every well-minded person praised the chief constable, and he himself considered that he had enhanced the town's reputation for a decent propriety. It was noticed, too, not without a shiver of the uncanny, that that night the lions and tigers behaved like lambs, whereas on the previous night they had roared the whole square out of its sleep. The chief constable was not the only individual enlisted by Mr. Critchlow in the service of his friend's fame. Mr. Critchlow spent hours in recalling the principal citizens to a due sense of John Baines's past greatness. He was determined that his treasured toy should vanish underground with due pomp, and he left nothing undone to that end. He went over to Hanbridge on the still wonderful horse-car, and saw the editor-proprietor of the Staffordshire Signal, then a two-penny weekly with no thought of football editions. And on the very day of the funeral the signal came out with a long and eloquent biography of John Baines. This biography, giving details of his public life, definitely restored him to his legitimate position in the civic memory as an ex-chief bailiff, an ex-chairman of the burial board, and of the Five Towns Association for the Advancement of Useful Knowledge and also as a prime mover in the local turnpike act, in the negotiations for the new town hall, and in the Corinthian façade of the Wesleyan chapel. It narrated the anecdote of his courageous speech from the portico of the Shambles during the riots of 1848, 
and it did not omit a eulogy of his steady adherence to the wise old English maxims of commerce, and his avoidance of dangerous modern methods. Even in the sixties the modern had reared its shameless head. The panegyric closed with an appreciation of the dead man's fortitude in the terrible affliction with which a divine providence had seen fit to try him. And finally the signal uttered its absolute conviction that his native town would raise a cenotaph to his honour. Mr. Critchlow, being unfamiliar with the word cenotaph, consulted Worcester's dictionary, and when he found that it meant a sepulchral monument to one who is buried elsewhere, he was as pleased with the signal's language as the idea, and decided that a cenotaph should come to pass. The house and shop were transformed into a hive of preparation for the funeral. All was changed. Mr. Povey kindly slept for three nights on the parlour sofa, in order that Mrs. Baines might have his room. The funeral grew into an obsession, for multitudinous things had to be performed, and done sumptuously and in strict accordance with precedent. There were the family mourning, the funeral repast, the choice of the text on the memorial card, the composition of the legend on the coffin, the legal arrangements, the letters to relations, the selection of guests, and the question of bell-ringing, hearse, plumes, number of horses, and grave-digging. Nobody had leisure for the indulgence of grief except Aunt Maria, who, after she had helped in the laying out, simply sat down and bemoaned unceasingly for hours her absence on the fatal morning. "'If I hadn't been so fixed on polishing my candlesticks,' she weepingly repeated, "'he might have been alive and well now.' Not that Aunt Maria had been informed of the precise circumstances of the death— she was not clearly aware that Mr. Baines had died through a piece of neglect. But, like Mr. Critchlow, she was convinced that there had been only one person in the world truly capable of nursing Mr. Baines. Beyond the family, no one save Mr. Critchlow and Dr. Harrop knew just how the martyr had finished his career. Dr. Harrop, having been asked bluntly if an inquest would be necessary, had reflected a moment, and then replied, No. And he added, Least said, soonest mended. Mark me. They had marked him. He was common sense in breeches. As for Aunt Maria, she was sent about her snivelling business by Aunt Harriet, the arrival in the house of this genuine aunt from Axe, of the majestic and enormous widow, whom even the imperial Mrs. Baines regarded with a certain awe, set a seal of ultimate solemnity on the whole event. In Mr. Povey's bedroom, Mrs. Baines fell like a child into Aunt Harriet's arms, and sobbed, "'If it had been anything but that elephant!' Such was Mrs. Baines's sole weakness, from first to last. Aunt Harriet was an exhaustless fountain of authority upon every detail concerning interments, and to a series of questions ending with the word sister, and answers ending with the word sister, the prodigious travail, incident to the funeral, was gradually and successfully accomplished. Dress and the repast exceeded all other matters in complexity and difficulty. But on the morning of the funeral, Aunt Harriet had the satisfaction of beholding her younger sister the centre of a tremendous cocoon of crape, whose slightest pleat was perfect. Aunt Harriet seemed to welcome her then, like a veteran, formally into the august army of relicts. As they stood side by side, surveying the special table which was being laid in the showroom for the repast, it appeared inconceivable that they had reposed together in Mr. Povey's limited bed. 
they descended from the showroom to the kitchen, where the last delicate dishes were inspected. The shop was, of course, closed for the day, but Mr. Povey was busy there, and in Aunt Harriet's all-seeing glance he came next after the dishes. She rose from the kitchen to speak with him. "'You've got your boxes of gloves already?' she questioned him. "'Yes, Mrs. Maddock. "'You'll not forget to have a measure handy?' "'No, Mrs. Maddock. "'You'll find you want more of seven and three-quarters and eights than anything?' "'Yes, I have allowed for that. "'If you'll place yourself behind the side-door and put your boxes on the harmonium, "'you'll be able to catch every one as they come in. "'That is what I had thought of, Mrs. Maddock.' "'She went upstairs again.' Mrs. Baines had reached the showroom again, and was smoothing out creases in the white damask cloth and arranging glass dishes of jam at equal distances from each other. "'Come, sister,' said Mrs. Maddock. "'A last look.' And they passed into the mortuary bedroom, to gaze at Mr. Baines before he should be everlastingly nailed down. In death he had recovered some of his earlier dignity, but even so he was a startling sight. The two widows bent over him one on either side, and gravely stared at that twisted, worn, white face, all neatly tucked up in linen. "'I shall fetch Constance and Sophia,' said Mrs. Maddock, with tears in her voice. "'Do you go into the drawing-room, sister?' But Mrs. Maddock only succeeded in fetching Constance. Then there was the sound of wheels in King Street. The long rite of the funeral was about to begin. Every guest— after having been measured and presented with a pair of the finest black kid gloves by Mr. Povey, had to mount the crooked stairs and gaze upon the carcass of John Baines, going afterwards to the drawing-room to condole briefly with the widow, and every guest, while conscious of the enormity of so thinking, thought what an excellent thing it was that John Baines should be at last dead and gone. The tramping on the stairs was continual, and finally— Mr. Baines himself went downstairs, bumping against corners, and led a cortege of twenty vehicles. The funeral tea was not over at seven o'clock, five hours after the commencement of the rite. It was a gigantic and faultless meal, worthy of John Baines's distant past. Only two persons were absent from it, John Baines and Sophia. The emptiness of Sophia's chair was much noticed. Mrs. Maddock explained that Sophia was very high-strung and could not trust herself. Great efforts were put forth by the company to be lugubrious and inconsolable, but the secret relief resulting from the death would not be entirely hidden. The vast pretense of acute sorrow could not stand intact against that secret relief and the lavish richness of the food. To the offending of sundry important relatives from a distance— Mr. Critchlow informally presided over that assemblage of grave men in high stocks and crinoline women. He had closed his shop, which had never before been closed on a weekday, and he had a great deal to say about this extraordinary closure. It was due as much to the elephant as to the funeral. The elephant had become a victim to the craze for souvenirs. Already in the night his tusks had been stolen. Then his feet disappeared for umbrella-stands, and most of his flesh had departed in little hunks. Everybody in Bursley had resolved to participate in the elephant. One consequence was that all the chemists' shops in the towns were assaulted by strings of boys. "'Please a penneth of alum to take smell out of a bit of elephant!' 
Mr. Critchlow hated boys. "'I'll allum you,' says I. "'And I did. I allumed him out of my shop with a pestle. If there'd been one, there'd been twenty between opening and nine o'clock. "'George,' I says to my apprentice, "'shut sharp up. My old friend John Baines is going to his long home to-day, and I'll close. I've had enough of allum for one day.' The elephant fed the conversation until after the second relay of hot muffins. When Mr. Critchlow had eaten to his capacity, he took the signal importantly from his pocket, posed his spectacles, and read the obituary all through in slow, impressive accents. Before he reached the end, Mrs. Baines began to perceive that familiarity had blinded her to the heroic qualities of her late husband. The fourteen years of ceaseless care were now quite genuinely forgotten, and she saw him in his strength and in his glory. When Mr. Critchlow arrived at the eulogy of the husband and father, Mrs. Baines rose and left the showroom. The guests looked at each other in sympathy for her. Mr. Critchlow shot a glance at her over his spectacles, and continued steadily reading. After he had finished, he approached the question of the cenotaph. Mrs. Baines, driven from the banquet by her feelings, went into the drawing-room. Sophia was there, and Sophia, seeing tears in her mother's eyes, gave a sob, and flung herself bodily against her mother, clutching her, and hiding her face in that broad crepe which abraded her soft skin. "'Mother!' she wept passionately. "'I want to leave the school now. I want to please you. I'll do anything in the world to please you. I'll go into the shop, if you'd like me to.' Her voice lost itself in tears. "'Calm yourself, my pet.' said Mrs. Baines, tenderly caressing her. It was a triumph for the mother, in the very hour when she needed a triumph. End of chapter 4